So, one of uh, my favorite things to do before sitting down to write the homily for the week is to go into our Gandhi playrooms and explore. To sit on the floor and to look and see if the story that God has put in my heart to encounter that week is somehow holding down a shelf, just waiting, waiting to be discovered. And just like any big kid, I oftentimes have to call Teresa, my favorite storyteller, and ask her where they are because for some reason I wasn't listening the first time she told me. <laughs> but the patient teacher in her always obliges my request because she knows that I love stories. And she knows, along with all the other rapid play storytellers in this place, how to speak the language of wonder, and how that wonder shapes the heart of a child, no matter their size. Rebecca McLean once wrote, Star stories are not just for children. It is through stories that identity is shaped, relationships are developed, and the future is imagined. And what a story we get today in Scripture's first lesson, from the First Testament. In particular, the arresting climax of a long-awaited family reunion that was once fractured by greed, misunderstanding, and hardness of heart. Seems relevant, in a way. Social biologist Edward Olson said that our devotion to these kinds of stories is born out of the observation that that is how the mind works. A never-ending wandering through past scenarios and through alternative scenarios of the future. And you know what he's talking about. How many times have you thought to yourself, well, if only I had done that. Right? Or, in my case, a lot of times, I wish I hadn't done that. <laughs> Leading inevitably to the observation that things would be different somehow if the story had taken a turn. Returning again and again to these great epics does many things to us over the course of a lifetime. Stories create vocabularies that are visual, that are oral, and sensual. And at the best of times, somehow activate <coughs> the body-mind connection. And you know this well because what are our memories if not our stories? And after having lived amongst you for the past three years, stories remain not only at the heart of our communal experience, but are so powerful at times, so emotional, so concentrated, that we cannot help but live into them and impart their essence to one another. Spiritual formation is shaped much in the same way. Spiritual formation is shaped by our engagement with and listening to these stories week after week, and as our vocabulary develops, so does our language around certain concepts. It's been said that language is the grail of human social evolution. In his book on the human condition, Wilson affirms that, saying that language is not basic, it's derived. 
meaning language itself is sourced from an experience. And so we believe that language is fundamental to our experience. The language of Christian people then is derived from experiences that are evocative and expressive, embodied and embedded, allowing us all to remember who we are, whose we are, where we've been, and finally, where we are going. And if where we are going doesn't concern us in this day and age, day and this very hour, then I think we need to revisit with earnestness the gospel and hear again our Lord and his instruction on the posture and how the inner disposition of our hearts develop a language all of its own. Have to flip it, but it's there. Because if we take that time and we do that work and do it again and again, then we will have the opportunity to encounter with a fresh perspective the dynamic tension of the present moment and know what to do with it. But first that means we need to hear the story, we need to feel it, we have to listen so we can ultimately see it as it continually develops before us. And quite possibly there is no greater climax in the First Testament than Joseph before his brothers to teach us that language. The language we all should be uniquely qualified to express. The language of grace. And if there's anything that we can feel and feel immediately in this story, it's Joseph's emotion. The weeping of Joseph stops being dead in my tracks. For here's not a depiction of a human overcome by a mixture of emotions, but where the powers of what the world affords only to a few, right, is powerful. Encounters the power of the heart. And I'm not talking about sentimentality, affection, or passion. Mind you, all those are here. But this right here is an encounter with the power of the world, meaning the language of grace. And after hearing that story again, I know you can see it. I know that you can feel it. Joseph, second only to Pharaoh in power, has his brothers before him. The ones who lie. The ones who isolated him. The ones who stripped him. The ones who threw him in a dirty hole. Reasoned to murder him within earshot. His own blood, who sold him into slavery, never to be seen again. Who betrayed him. All those guys are right there. And they're caught between starvation and pride. He has them. And instead of leaning in to that dark energy, he expresses it. Joseph lets it leave his heart, heaving great sobs at them. So loud, in fact, that the whole household a pharaoh heard it. There upon the edge of that moment, the power of the world gives way to love. Gives way to grace. And mind you, it is the only power that can heal people when they both find themselves afflicted by the power of this world. Joseph has 
every reason. Joseph has every resource to crush them. And some might say Joseph has every right to do unto him, do unto them, as they have done unto him, an eye for an eye. But that is not the way that Joseph chooses to speak. Instead, he does the hardest thing that any of us will at one time or another have to do. Or, at one time or another, find ourselves in a position to receive. Joseph shows us his heart, he speaks the truth, he reveals himself, he forgives, and ultimately gives that something none of us should really want to give or receive. Gives grace. Or to give grace. Love that is unmerited in the face of betrayal is costly. It's hard. And to be on the receiving end of that grace, right? love that is unmerited, means that you know the cost of your actions. And that ultimately the love that is allowed to service in that moment gives no need to work. Whether you're worthy to receive that love or not. But because it is one, if not the only way that two or more people are wounded can help, can end up healing each other at the same time. That's powerful. In that moment, grace allows truth to emerge, healing to begin, and time and the ability to work, so that all might be reconciled to God. 2020, a decade born into a pandemic where authors have developed language around what it means for the truth to die, where countless folks have learned in their flesh how fear breeds isolation, and where we as a culture have developed a striking body of literature and literacy around the anatomy, it should make us want to reflect on how we listen, how we see, how we tell a story, and what it means for us to develop fluency in speaking the language language Joseph spoke, the language that Jesus lived, 